please turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Begin to read with verse 8 and read through verse 11. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and lived again. I know your trouble or your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy of them that say they are Jews and they are not but are a synagogue of Satan. Fear not the things which you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried, and you shall have tribulation ten days. Be you faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He that has an ear, Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He that overcomes shall not be hurt of the second death. Now having asked the Lord to help us in the preaching and the hearing of his word, let us give our attention now to this very important and carefully worded text of the scripture as we consider tonight the letter to the church in Smyrna. Immediately we understand there's a contrast between the situation in the church in Smyrna and the one in Ephesus which we've studied in past months. In Ephesus the church was fairly well to do, was a large and prospering church and had been prospering in doctrine and in practice and in good integrity of practice for several decades but was now sanctioned by the Lord because she was declining. Not declining in the numbers of membership, perhaps. Not declining in external prosperity, perhaps. But declining in her affections, in the ardor of of her love for Christ. Her first love, she had forsaken it and left it. Not so in Smyrna. Almost the opposite picture is seen in this church. The city of Smyrna was located and still is under a different name, approximately 40 miles from ancient Ephesus in Asia Minor. North of the city of Ephesus, a lovely place, a leader in Asia Minor in business and industry. In fact, at least rivaling and perhaps surpassing Ephesus in commerce and industrial arts and business acumen. There were many prosperous Jews who lived in Smyrna, and there was a prominent, at least one prominent synagogue there, and perhaps even more. Now, the church in Smyrna is an interesting study. You noted in verse 8, as it is the formula in each of these letters, that the letter was supposed to be written and sent to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Who was this angel? Now, I'm under the impression, and it is my opinion, 
that this reference to the angel of the churches refers to the pastor or the person who is the primarily responsible person for the administration of the word of God in the church. That person that is probably possessed with the greater uh, preaching gifts and the one that is more uh, in the spearhead and in the forefront and the vanguard of the preaching and public ministry of the church, the angel of the church. Well, in Smyrna, there's a very interesting and heartwarming story because it is probable that this angel of the church of Smyrna was Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of John, the apostle. In fact, Polycarp was commissioned into the pastorate by the apostle John. He was converted, we believe, approximately A.D. 82. So that at the writing of the book of Revelation, he had been a Christian for some 13 to 15 years maybe 16 years, depending on the dating of the book of Revelation. So he was not a novice. We know that uh, there was a letter written in 108 A.D. by Irenaeus in which Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna, is mentioned in the letter. So at least by 108, he is the leading pastor of that church. But Polycarp had an experience that you no doubt have heard if you've read Fox's Book of Martyrs or any other history of martyrdom. In A.D. 168, Polycarp was killed and burned at the stake under the authority of Marcus Aurelius, the Roman emperor, and with much help from the Jews in Smyrna, who actually helped carry the sticks and the wood to make up the fire to burn this saint. Now, you noticed I said in A.D. 168, he was killed. Now, that is a long time after his conversion in 82. What is that, something like uh, 86 years? And isn't that what he said in his martyrdom? When they gave him the formula of the opportunity to recant his faith and save his life, he said, 80 and 6 years have I served my Savior. He has never failed me nor given me aught. Why should I disown him now? And then the man said, well, if, uh, if if that doesn't scare you, we'll bring out the sword. And he said, go ahead and kill me. If that doesn't scare you, we'll kill you with the flame. And he said, there's a flame much more eternal and hotter than the one that you're going to use to burn my body. Let the flames come. And Polycarp has gone down in history as one of those wonderfully encouraging men. But at least he had been a Christian for 86 years when he was killed, at least probably a hundred years old. And I personally believe somewhat older than a hundred. It's said in history that He died in an advanced and extreme old age. And he went to his grave, the pastor of this church, the old and aged Polycarp. And in fact, the Jews who were so angry against this decrepit old gentleman and who instigated and led a large part of the persecution against the church of Smyrna in that age and who helped kill this man were so carried away and satiated by his death that the persecution dissolved after he was killed. The, there was a way in which God used it that must have been even to those wicked people to touch their hearts that their wickedness had reached its nth degree that they would be breathing out such threats and bitterness and anger against an old, old man as Polycarp. And we believe that that is the one spoken of as the angel of the church at Smyrna. Now the church in Smyrna is one above whom none were more beloved of our Lord Jesus than they. And yet there was no church poorer in this world than this struggling little church in Smyrna. 
It is possible, yea, probable, that their goods had been spoiled, that they had not been allowed to have the better jobs in the city. Many of them, no doubt, had lost their employment because of their convictions and their stand, and the Lord recognized that they were poor and by this world's standards. And yet, the letter to the church at Smyrna possesses no rebukes to them, no warnings to them. The Lord has nothing negative to say to them about their state and their condition before him. As it is true in five of the other six epistles, it is not true here. The Lord has nothing negative to say. Their lampstand was not threatened with extinction. In fact, as late at least as the end of last century, the Muslims still called the city of Smyrna the infidel Smyrna because there were so many Christians still worshiping in Smyrna, unwilling to bow to the Turkish Muslim hordes and never had been converted to Islam. So the Lord himself sustained the witness of this little church all the way through the centuries. And it stands out in all these letters as perhaps the sweetest and the tenderest of all the ones that our Lord addresses himself to. The present lot of the church at Smyrna when this letter was sent was that of poverty and persecution. Look at verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy of them that say they are Jews, and they're not, but are a synagogue of Satan. That was their present situation when the letter was sent. Poverty and persecution. Persecution at the face and the mouth of the blasphemous Jews who claimed to be the people of God and who put them down and were on their case and distressful and discouraging to them. And sometimes, brethren, the words of those that hate you can hurt as deeply as any flesh wounds can ever damage. And they can break your heart just as surely as sticks can break your bones. Poverty and persecution was their present lot. And their future outlook? Well, look at verse 10. Fear not the things which you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison that you may be tried, and you shall have tribulation ten days. Be you faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The present lot, poverty and persecution. The future outlook, prison and death. The devil's going to cast some of you into prison. Be faithful unto death. Now that's the situation of the church at Smyrna. Not much to go, go for it in this world. Not much to say for it. Not much of this world's riches or fame. A struggling church in the midst of a city that was high in business and well prospered. In which those who claimed to be the Israel of God persecuted them. And rejected them. And brought them low. And so the Lord sends this epistle. To encourage them and to lift them up. Knowing their present lot of poverty and persecution and their future outlook of prison and death. Now before we go further, stop a minute and think about that kind of church and being a member of that kind of church. Which would you rather be? A member of the church at Smyrna 
which is told that the way they're living now is in tribulation and poverty and persecution, slandered and hated, ostracized in the community, no standing, probably could not get an article in the paper, probably were not allowed to advertise much around the town, probably were looked upon as a threat to the economy, or would you rather be a member of a church that knows nothing of that kind of thing but has no problems in this world? Would you like to be a member of a church who, when the Lord addresses you, finds out that your future is filled with imprisonment and will end in death? Would you choose that over a church that's going to multiply immensely, going to have good acceptance in the community, whose pastor would be a member of all the good organizations in the business world, who would be upstanding and respected in the community, who would participate in all the activities and the social affairs of the city without anybody feeling uncomfortable around them, a church that is liked and approved and about whom all men speak well? Which would you prefer? Be honest with yourself before you answer the question. Because the temptation is ever before us to move one direction or the other. And I don't believe we'll ever get out away from that temptation. And we're always prone to lowering our guard and to begin to take the, the low road and the easy path. So as to avoid what I believe always comes to the church that follows the path of Smyrna. Some form of tribulation and suffering and persecution. Well, that's the situation of the church. And what I wish to do tonight is to open up this passage and this letter to the church at Smyrna under two headings. First of all, I want us to notice the encouraging reality that our Lord opens up to the brethren at Smyrna. And second, the uplifting exhortation that he gives to them. In the first place, then, notice the encouraging reality that our Lord notes for the brethren at Smyrna. Now, this reality has two parts. There are two kinds of reality. There are two realms of reality. The first realm of reality is the reality of this world. Our Lord is a realist, and when he addresses the church, he addresses them as the thing really stands, and he states the real situation. First of all, they are in trouble. As early as the first chapter of Revelation, verse 9, John is writing as a fellow sufferer in the tribulation that is in Jesus. And here the church at Smyrna is seen by our Lord to be in tribulation. Now this word tribulation means that they are suffering as a, a result of affliction imposed upon them. It's not just ordinary common problems. It is the result of external pressure put upon them. It is suffering. It is the, the result of squeezing, the result of, of hampering, the result of rasping and irritation. It is a suffering that is brought on them by the effects of those outside who don't like them and who don't love them. Second, the Lord says, I know your poverty. We've already mentioned something about what that meant. He understood that the church, as far as this world could judge, wasn't doing very well. And third, he knows the blasphemy of those that say they're Jews and are not. 
And it's a grievous thing to be persecuted by hypocrites and liars. Because see, as those Jews were prospering in the business world at Smyrna, and everybody liked them downtown, the people of the church in Smyrna were not liked and accepted in the halls of state and at the corner and in the, in the gates where the elders met. And these hypocrites who were passing themselves off as God's people were doing well. While God's true people were not doing well. They were poor. And those that called themselves Jews, the people of God, were the cause of much of the persecution and the tribulation. And so the Lord recognizes the grievousness of their plight at the mouth of the blasphemers who said they were Jews, but were not. Rather, the Lord sees them as the synagogue of Satan. They claim to represent God. They mix well in the city, but they're not of God. And that's all the more grievous. The reality in this world is this church is in trouble. This church has problems. Prison awaits them. Death is coming for some of them. We know that 80 years later or 70 years later, one of the, their pastor was martyred. And we know many of the members no doubt were. But apparently this prophecy is going to be fulfilled in even a shorter period of time. So this church may well have been persecuted unto death for a long period off and on under the Romans. The Lord predicts such for them. That's the reality of this world. In fact, if you'll turn quickly to Revelation chapter 12, we, we remember in our study of Revelation the explanation of this situation. The Lord has not left us in the dark when he sent this letter, this large letter or small book to these seven churches. He included all the truths that they needed to know to encourage them to endure to the end. And in chapter 12, as the apostle is by the Spirit of God explaining what lies behind all this chaos and crisis and conflict in the world, in verse 12 of chapter 12, he makes a statement that gives us a clue as to what's going to be the reality and the portion of every true church in the history of this world. In verse 12, he says, Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you that dwell in them. Why? Well, the therefore refers back to verses 10 and 11, uh, all the way back up to the first part of the chapter, when the devil, Satan, the dragon, the serpent, was cast out. The accuser of the brethren has been cast out, and he's been conquered, and he's been conquered by the blood of Christ and the word of the testimony of Christ. In verse 10, now is come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they loved not their life even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you that dwell in them. Meaning, those of you who dwell in the heavens, even those of you who have been beheaded for the testimony of Christ, who have been martyred for Jesus' sake, rejoice because the devil can't touch you and harm you. 
And the one who would lay anything to your charge has been cast out so that he cannot accuse you legitimately anymore. If God be for us, who can be against us? Who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died. So by the blood of the Lamb, there's no condemnation to them. And those that are in heaven are out of his reach and unable to be bothered by him. And they rule and reign with Christ a thousand years. And they glorify their Savior. And the devil can't touch them. But read the next clause in verse 12. And this is the reality for the people of God in this world. Woe for the earth and for the sea. Why woe for the earth and the sea? Because the devil is gone down unto you, having great wrath, knowing that he has but a short time. And he's angry. And against whom is he angry? And about what is he going to be doing his business in this short time that God has given him? Verses 13 and following tell us, without reading all of them, we'll simply jump to verse 17 when it says, The dragon waxed wroth with the woman and went away to make war with the rest of her seed that keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. So what are we being told in Revelation chapter 12? The reality of this world as it applies to the people of God who live in this world and serve God in this world and worship in this world is the devil is down there and he's greatly wroth and he knows he has a short time and he's, a, he's attempting to devour you and to destroy you. That's your lot in this world. That's the reality of this world. Our Lord recognizes it when he says, I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. I know that it's being done by liars and you're not getting your just due. You're being slandered by blasphemers who are being accepted in the community as being God's people, but who are not God's people. And I'm telling you that the devil whom they serve is, a go is going to cast some of you into prison to test you. And then you're going to have to be faithful all the way under your death. That's your lot. That's your situation. That's the reality. But you remember, our point is the encouraging reality. Well, what's encouraging about that reality? What happens but the shivering of your limbs when you think that Satan is here and angry and he's pulled all of his hosts together to devour the church of Christ and as a roaring lion, he stalks about seeking whom he may devour. And if you ever have been to the zoo... And been around the lion cages, you know that at feeding time, that's when the fun comes. That's when the lion starts stalking around the cage and getting restless and making the noise. That's when you're going to be more prone to get the roar because the stomach is demanding the roar. And the lion is hungry and he wants to eat and he wants to devour a chunk of meat. And so that... As we've watched in the past, sometimes even when the keeper comes with the meat, the lion tries to get to the keeper and tries to go through the cage. And they're huge animals and they're awesome animals. And the devil is described in the scripture as being like that. A roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Stalking about. Hungry. Hungry for what? For the spiritual meat of God's people. He's out to devour them. Well, that's the reality, but there's not much encouragement in that reality. 
But see, there's a second part of the reality that makes it an encouraging reality, the reality beyond this world, the reality that goes past what we see and feel and hear, the reality that our Lord fully understands when he looks at them and says, I know your poverty, and then in parenthesis, but you're rich. And on what ground does he make such a statement? Because he doesn't judge the way men judge. He doesn't evaluate the strength of a church based on the size of its building or necessarily the number of its baptisms or its budget or how many people are sitting comfortably in its pews. The Lord judges the strength of the church by a different standard from the one that men use. The Lord looks at a church for, for which men are, uh, are embarrassed and ashamed who think of it as poor and he says, but you are rich. Because the reality in the mind of our Lord, the head of the church, goes beyond this world and carnal measurement. Now, there are two aspects of this reality that are clearly laid out before us in this passage. And I want us to look at them. The reality beyond this world that comes into the church at Smyrna for their very encouragement are these two. First, the identity of their master. The identity of their master is a part of the reality that is designed to encourage them. Look at the first section of this letter. Verse 8b. These things says who? The first and the last. Well, what's that there for? Does the Lord simply enjoy talking about himself? Are these just words to fill in a verse? These things say the first and the last. Just little theological points. You brush past them, the first and the last. Yes, I've read that. First and the last. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Yeah, yeah, that's who Jesus is. And, uh, what, and most of us tend not to stop and meditate and learn and study and find out what that may, means. But as those of us who have studied the first chapter of Revelation have learned, this is not an idle statement. This is not wasted words. This is nothing less than a statement that the one addressing them is God himself, eternal. He's the first. As far back as you go, there he is. From everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Who is it addressing, Smyrna? But God, the everlasting God. Have you not known, have you not heard that the everlasting God, that's the, that's the language of Isaiah, the everlasting God doesn't sleep or slumber. He knows, he has strength, he hasn't forgotten. This is the first and the last. Now, why is this comforting? And you see, it's so important to understand this, brethren. The doctrines of the Bible, and especially the great doctrines of God, God the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the doctrines of Christ, the doctrines of redemption, the doctrines of creation and providence. Those great doctrines of the Bible are not simply laid in there to stimulate and to titillate the mental exercises of theologues. Those doctrines are designed to comfort believers, and they do comfort believers. Don't you find yourself, as you listen to these sermons on the attributes of God, not getting so caught up in a nice intellectual exercise of thought 
that don't you find yourself drawing from those truths much encouragement and comfort for your soul? Don't you find that even before he comes to make application that you've already in your heart begun to say, wow, isn't that good? That's good for me that God's like that. Isn't that occurring to many of you as you hear that preaching? And you don't think of these as dry lectures on the attributes of God out there. You think of these doctrines as precious to your survival, to your comfort, to the joy of your life. They put a spring in your step. They make Monday not the same as it would have been otherwise. They make you able to face this world and its realities of Satan's anger against you with a whole different approach and perspective. Because behind the reality of this world is the reality of the other world, who it is that's in charge of this thing. You see, the persecutors of the church at Smyrna are not the originators of this thing. There's one that predates them. And all that they're doing is a part of his plan. No accidents. History hasn't hit a snag. Our, our lot has not fallen by the wayside here. Smyrna is not out of the hands of the Lord. He's not forgotten. Everything that's happened finds its origin in him and his decree and his counsel and his mind and his purpose. These are no quirks of fate. These are no accidents. So the church at Smyrna doesn't need to be restive in this business. The church at Smyrna can know because of the one addressing them that whatever's happening is a part of his plan. He's the first. Everything that happens comes out of the beginning of him. Somehow it fits into his plan. And so there's comfort to be known that there's one that predates these people that are causing our problem. But there's also encouragement in knowing that he postdates them. He's not only the first, but he's the last. You see, it's for his sake that these people are poor. It's because of their stand in his name that they have lost out in this world. It's expressly because they've decided to take a stand and stay with it that they don't have the advantages of this world. And therefore, the sufferings that they are getting are because of their love for him. He, in that sense, is the cause of their difficulty. But he's not only the first, he's the last. He's not only the author of the world, but he's its judge. Not only is he the beginning of the world and the creator, but at the end the world will find its way to his feet. And its last destiny will be determined not by evolutionary accident, not by man's creation of atomic uh, fission, not by science and education and government, not by some quirk of fate or some collective essence of mankind's ingenuity. No, it'll all find its way down the funnel and it'll end up at the feet of the Lord Jesus who will determine all of it. He's the last. That's where it's all headed. It'll all end up right there. He started all of it and it'll all end up right there. And none of it will pass by him and none of it will escape that hour. It's all headed for the last day at the feet of the last, capital L. And all the judgment of the earth will come to him. And he'll dispense with it. You see, he's the controller of history. 
because he founded it. He planned it. Even as we heard this morning, his foreknowledge is nothing other than the working out of his decree. He knows it's going to happen because he's the one that's decided it's going to happen. He's the one that constructed it from before the foundation of the world. He's the one that blueprinted it and plotted it. And he's going to see to it that his house is built and that his blueprint has fallen. There's no chance of accident. But at the same time, not only does he control history, but he judges history. Not only is he behind these people who are overthrowing the comfort and the worldly stability and security of the Smyrna Christians, but he also will call them to give account of what they've done to his people. And he'll never let them go beyond his own permissive will. He's the first and the last. Every one of these letters that starts with some designation about who our Lord is, start with those designations that are most appropriate and needed by that particular church. If you study the letters, you'll find there are no idle listings of his attributes, but the very attributes he lists are designed for that church's greatest need at that hour. So learn these attributes, understand the significance of them, and then see how they're designed to comfort the people who hear them. I'm the first and the last. In other words, don't pay so much attention to what these blasphemous Jews are saying. Listen to what I'm saying. Here he says who is the first and the last. You see, what does Christ say about this? That's what counts. The one that determines it, the one that controls it, the one that is taking it to its object and logical conclusion. What does he have to say about it? That's really ultimately all that matters. What the Lord says. And he says, we're rich. We look poor. The Lord says we're rich. That makes us rich. Because he knows the reality. He sees it all from front to back. And he says, we're rich. Now, how are we going to see ourselves? We see ourselves the way he sees us. That's what they're able to say in Smyrna. But the second aspect of this identity of their master, not only does he say the first and the last, but he also says in the second place, I was dead. And I lived again. I became dead. But I didn't stay dead. Now, do you immediately see the comforting and encouraging application of that reality to these people? He's about to tell them that they're going to be having to endure to death. Not up to the point of death, but unto dying. They're going to have to die. They're going to be cast into prison. Now, what do they need to have as a backdrop or as a foundation in order to be able to take that kind of expectation? What do they need to know? They need to know who it is that they're linked to and in union with. And who is he? Well, he's deity. We saw his deity in the first and the last, but now we see his authority in the fact that he was dead and lived. You see, for the church at Smyrna, the very worst that they could experience, death, he already had experienced it. But not only had he experienced it, he had conquered it. He died. He understands death. He's been there. You're going to die, he says, because of your faith, many of you. But not only was I dead, I became alive. Now, I know something you don't know. I've done something you haven't done. 
And as you're attached to me, you too have the same confidence that in the first fruits of the resurrection, you will as well rise from the dead. Not only has he experienced what we will experience, but he has conquered it. And brethren, if the Lord has conquered the worst thing that can happen to us, why be all uptight about the lesser? So you see in the first place the reality beyond the world is that we see the identity of the master of our church as God who possesses full authority over death. And that authority is exercised for the good of his people whom the devil's going to kill but whom death cannot hold because they are in Jesus. And those that are in Jesus, the living will not prevent. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And there we shall ever be with the Lord. Therefore, we are to comfort one another with these words. But the second aspect of this reality beyond this world, not only the identity of their master, but the disposition of their Lord. The disposition of the Lord. Notice in the formula of all the letters in verse 9 he says, I know. Now carefully observe this little phrase, I know. We won't go into all that we went into and we studied it in the letter to Ephesus, nor will we uh, attempt to repeat the wonderful way we heard it this morning. But you see, this no is like the no of a parent when the little one is crying and sobbing uncontrollably because of great pain. And the loving and wise and experienced and sensitive parent always knows how to say, they're there, I know. And the older the children get, the more you'll be prone to learn that. The teenagers who sometimes come home with inexplicable emotional damage and they just need somebody to understand. Sometimes it's good just to be able to sit down by the side of the bed and say, I know, I know, I know. Sometimes that's all that's needed. An arm around the shoulder, a kiss on the forehead of the cheek, and the little words, I know. I know your poverty. I know your tribulation. I know about those people that are hypocrites and they're getting by with murder. I know. I know. See, in in the other epistles, when the Lord says, I know, there's two sides to that. I know your works, I know this, but I also know what you've been doing wrong. In this case, there's not a no of sin. It's not a knowledge of anything wrong. There's nothing the Lord's rebuking. It's the tender no of one who understands. I know. I know. Well, what's significant about that is that's so great is that not only does he know, but he's in the position to do something about it. This is the first and the last. This is the one that has the keys of death and hell. This is the one to whom history is flowing. This is the one that will judge these people and vindicate his people. This is the one, as we saw in the psalm this morning, who's going to cast down the wicked and establish the righteous and the meek. I know. And you see, that's all we need to know. He knows. He knows. One of the most encouraging and exemplary Christians in all of biography history for me so far is George Whitfield. Because George Whitfield was a, 
a great evangelist. God used him mightily in England and in America. And as he preached in this continent and in England, he came into something of uh, dispute uh, with his dear brother, John Wesley. And John Wesley was not, I believe, as wise and as restrained as he ought to have been. And so he uttered some public words against Mr. Wesley and uh, made efforts to undermine some of his labors by his public statements. And he made some statements that were not altogether accurate about Mr. Wesley. Until his grave, Mr. Wesley was urged by some of his close friends to get into the fray and defend himself and to come out and make a public statement and make the truth to be known and establish the facts so that Mr. Wesley would not be able to continue to get by with deceiving people behind Mr. Whitfield's back. Mr. Whitfield's answer almost invariably in every case was, the day will declare it. The day will declare it. And he refused to get into the fray, to enter into coming off the, the wall of Jerusalem to go dialogue with the Sanballats and the Tobias. He stayed up to the job God had given him to do, and he died uh, preaching. He was buried under a pulpit in eastern Massachusetts, where he ought to have been buried, perhaps. And it helps me to, to, to read that and to be encouraged by that. And to restrain myself from getting all caught up in fighting alligators when really my job was to drain the swamp. And there are a lot of folks that get led astray in the wrong battles and they get called down off the wall and they get trying to defend themselves and they get into big politic, political and denominational fights and they want to fight this issue and they want to play with this issue. And brethren, I must confess to you as your pastor, I'm not interested in getting into it. And it's going to take a lot to get me into it. And it's going on. It's not, not something that doesn't exist. But I don't believe that the high road is the road to the combat with other brethren who may or may not agree with us. I believe we have to take a stand. I believe we have to warn our people and protect the sheep of God against all error as we see it. But I believe as long as we know that our Savior knows and that in the end it will all be vindicated, that which was true and that which was false will be exposed. I believe we can rest in that and save ourselves lots of misery. And I believe that in the end we would be the kinds of people folks would feel more comfortable with and be more prone to come to for help and encouragement because we didn't get caught up in the wrong battle. There is a battle to be waged. There is a war to be fought, but not that one. And you can avoid it by knowing that the Lord knows. This is the disposition of a sympathetic commendation. The Lord commends this dear church. I know your poverty, but you are rich. Sympathy, commendation. And it's so helpful, brethren, when people cry on your shoulder, if you can do it legitimately and honestly, to say to them the truth about the things that need to be commended in them. It's very good to find those good qualities and point them out when people are discouraged about their bad qualities. It's good counsel not to let anybody get by with saying nothing but bad about himself. If there's anything good to be said, learn to find it and say it and encourage people with it. And don't always dwell on the bad. Sometimes we get so down on ourselves that nobody else can encourage us. But the Lord says, I know your poverty, but you're rich. 
You see, it's very possible that some of the brethren in Smyrna were beginning to talk about it and say, well, I just wish we could get some more converts. I wish a church could grow. How long are we going to be in this old building over here? Uh, We don't have enough to pay the pastor as we ought to pay him. Uh, Things are going bad, and it may well be that humbling and some fears welling up. I wouldn't doubt it. The Lord sees a need to say these things to them. I know your poverty, but you're rich. And you see, that's what we need to hear. That's, what we, that's all God's people need to hear. As long as I know the Lord Jesus knows and commends me, you say what you will. The qu- question is, does he, is he able to commend me? But if he is able to commend me honestly, you shouldn't be able to hurt me. I shouldn't give too much worry to what you say. If the Lord has said clearly. You're rich. He knows the reality and the truth. He judges righteously. He knows who's real and he knows who's not real. He knows their hurt and he knows their love for him. And he tells them so. And that's an encouraging reality. That the Lord God himself, from whom history flows and to whom history goes, knows our plight knows the end from the beginning and dearly loves us and commends us along the way. But in the second place, not only do we have in this epistle the exhortation of much encouragement, but we also have the uplifting exhortation. The Lord gives an exhortation to these people, actually a twofold exhortation, and it's an uplifting exhortation. This exhortation comes in the midst of the predictions of sufferings to come because our Lord is faithful never to fail to tell us what what it's going to cost us to follow. The Lord is not like the salesmen of America who tell only half the picture, if that. They don't necessarily lie. They're just certain features they omit. They know the problem with this car. They just know it won't sell if they tell you the problem with the car. They know what the vacuum cleaner won't do, so they emphasize what it will do. And brethren, I suggest to you that it's a very difficult thing to keep from being dishonest with that approach to sales. You may factor that in, you brethren who may be salesmen or may be considering it. It's going to cost you sometimes to live honestly. There are going to be some things you may not be able to sell. And there may be some sales managers who don't don't like your approach too much. Because there's certain aspects of honesty that you simply cannot divorce yourself from and have a clear conscience. I mean, after all, what is a Christian trying to do in the world? Help people get good cars so they can drive safely or make money off of them? What's his higher motive? Well, I trust that you know the answer. Well, the Lord's not like those salesmen. The Lord informs his people as to what it's going to cost them if he, if they stay true to him. The devil's going to cast some of you into prison and you're going to have to be faithful to death. You can get out of that. Just stop now. Just compromise now. Soften the preaching. Soften the holiness on the job. Soften the purity of your behavior. Begin to laugh a bit at the jokes. Begin to participate just a bit more. Don't be such a nerd, such a prude. Don't, uh, you don't have to be identified with these 
dumb Christians. Be a little more uh, informed man of the world. Get along with the gang. Lower the chances of persecution. But no, the Lord knows what this church is going to experience because he knows what the character of this church is. Behold, he says in verse 10, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison. It's as though the Lord is saying, look on the big screen now. Look up at it. I'm going to show you a picture. And he draws their attention to it. Behold. And he makes it very clear in keeping with his own teaching that you should not start to build without counting the cost. He says to his people, here's what it's going to take if you follow me. And then he gives the exhortation. He says to them in verse 10, fear not the things that you're about to suffer. And then he says at the end of verse 10, be you faithful unto death. Two exhortations. Fear not, be faithful. And notice when he says fear not, he does not say fear not because I'll keep you from suffering. He doesn't say, don't be afraid, it won't hurt. Don't tell your children it won't hurt if it's going to hurt. Don't do that to them. Children hate that. They'll grow up and despise you for that. You will become a liar to them. And later on you'll tell them things and they'll call you a liar to your face and they will not believe you. Don't say, it won't hurt when you've been through it and you know it hurts. Say, it'll hurt, but you can take it. I took it. Every other kid in the neighborhood took it. It's going to hurt a bit. You've got to take it. Don't let me any lip. Take it. I'll be here. The Lord will look after you. It'll hurt a bit. But it has to hurt to get better. Teach them those things. But don't lie to them. Don't lie to them. If you want to get them up in the morning, mamas, don't say, it's 7.30, you're going to miss the bus if it's really 6.45. It's been done. It's been done in this world. Because the mom doesn't have the courage to believe the child will actually obey her when she just says, get up. So she feels the need to get some help by lying. So she grabs for this motivation. You'll miss the bus. Mama, that's not the reason she's supposed to get up in the morning. That's an extra benefit. She ought to get up because it's a Christian duty to get up. It's right to awaken and be responsible. Don't lie. Don't lie, the Lord doesn't. He doesn't say, fear not, because I'm going to deliver you from your sufferings. He says, fear not, because there's no need to fear in those sufferings. Don't fear for the things that are coming upon you. Be faithful to death. Now, I said that this exhortation is an uplifting exhortation. And here are the reasons. In the first place, it's an uplifting exhortation. Because it directs its attention to two things. And these are the two things. It uplifts them because of the truth that lies behind the sufferings. And it's very good to study this passage and see the truth behind the sufferings. Look at three aspects of these sufferings. In the first place, notice the instrument of the sufferings. Now we got a hint back up in verse 9 in the last part. These blasphemers are the synagogue of Satan. But in verse 10, we read on and he says, The devil is about to cast you into prison. The instrument of these sufferings that they're about to endure and that they already have been enduring is the devil himself. 
Now, the terminology in this particular verse 10 of the devil is the slanderer, the false accuser. That's the aspect of this name that comes home to the reader. The one who falsely accuses and slanders and gets people in trouble who don't deserve to be in trouble. The devil. He's about to cast some of you in prison. These are the most upstanding citizens in Smyrna. These are the folks that do an honest day's work. These are the folks that when they find the nickel that comes out of the vending machine, they go to the owner and say, there's a nickel that came out extra. It's not mine. It belongs to you. You need to give this to the Coca-Cola man. These are the people that, that they haven't heard anything in the economy. They, they're nothing but additions to the economy. They've not hurt the, the politicians. They are submissive to their authorities. These are the, the safest bets in the whole culture. These folks are no threat to anybody. But the slanderer and the false accuser gets them thrown into jail. While the people that are demonic stay out. That'll know away at you if you let it. It'll get your goat if you let it. Don't let it. You see, the instrument of the suffering is the devil. He's behind this thing. His enemies, though, must be God's friends. It ought to encourage you to know that the source of these, or at least the instrument of these sufferings, is the devil. Because if the devil's mad at you, God must like you. You see the point there? You need to understand who's behind this throwing you into prison and killing you. It's the enemy of Christ. Well, what does that mean about you then? You must be the friend of Christ. He's out to get Christ and his people. So if it's the devil that's causing the problem, rejoice. Be encouraged that you're counted worthy to suffer shame for Christ's name, as the early apostles did. As one writer has said, Satan and his hosts are confederate in a scheme to crush the people of God by intimidation and violence. If he cannot seduce them by the love of the world. Probably the Ephesians were in the midst of seduction. And the harlot and the beast of Babylon <coughs> was about to bring them down from their first love. But not so Smyrna. They haven't been seduced by the world. The devil hasn't been able to soften them up by materialism. The devil hasn't gotten to their pride because they seem to be doing well in this world. No, the devil has to resort to more violent means to get to them. They didn't bow to the pressures of the lusts of the world, to the pride of life. So the devil's going to discourage them by persecuting them, throwing them into prison. You see, he ups the ante. He goes as far as he thinks he needs to go to get you. Some people, the devil never does have to persecute they give up the first sign of it. He waves a little waves a little flag of enticement and they run and bite. He throws a lure in the water and they grab it. He doesn't even have to come out and waylay them. They jump in the some people jump in the boat voluntarily without a lure. But if you tr prove steadfast and true and a fighter against sin and a resister of the devil, and when you flee temptation as you're commanded to do, the devil will then resort to other means. He's mad, brethren. He intends to bring you down. He intends to crush this church, your faith, 
He does not intend for you to get to the end safe and sound. He does not intend to see you safely across the dark river. He does not expect you to make it to the celestial city. He's going to do everything he can up to the time you're there to stop it. Don't be surprised. That's his way. But you need to understand it's the devil that's behind this scheme. And that will encourage you. But notice in the second place the truth behind these sufferings, not only the instrument, but the intent. What's going to happen? Well, he's going to cast some of you into prison in verse 10, that you may be tried. Now, different commentators do different things with this. One believes that this trial is the devil's temptation to sin. Another believes that it's the Lord trying you to prove you. I believe it's both. I believe that what's happening here is that the devil is casting you into prison as an instrument of God's purpose, the devil's intent to tempt you to give up, to quit, to leave the faith, to compromise, to cave in, and then to blaspheme the name of Christ because you couldn't take the pressure. But the Lord has another intent behind that one. The Lord indeed is using this to try you to refine you in the fire, to purify you, to prove you. Remember Job? And Satan goes to God? And Satan is going in and out among the sons of God? And he says, look at your servant Job. And God says, have you noticed? Perfect and upright. And Satan says, you let me have at him a bit. He's upright because you do everything good for him. Everything he's got... Everything he touches turns to gold. I'd be upright if you gave me that kind of stuff. You bless his whole life. Let me have at it. Let me. All right, you can touch his property, but not Job or his home. Remember what he did? Wiped out his property. Lost family of kids. Lost his goods. Finally got his wife uh, nagging him. Why don't you curse God and die? Got his own health in danger. The Lord let him do everything but kill Job. But remember, it was, a, it was a contest here, Job being the battlefield. The Lord proving Job's faith to be righteous and true and enduring while the devil was trying to prove it wasn't. And you remember the outcome. Who won that battle? Well, the Lord won that one. Who suffered through it? Job did. But his latter end was more prosperous than his first, was it not? All temptation, all chastening seems grievous for the moment, does it not? But afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. You say, Pastor, are you saying that this imprisonment was chastening by God? I thought you said he had no rebukes. He had no warnings. There was nothing wrong with this church. I didn't say there was nothing wrong. These were sinners saved by grace. These are people that need chastening. Death is God's last form of chastening. Don't be proud and defensive when the word chastening comes up in counseling. Oh, could the Lord be chastening? Chastening. Then you're implying that I've done something wrong to bring this problem under my life. Well, I'm simply asking you to consider the reality of what the Bible implies. When in Hebrews chapter 12, the writer says, You've forgotten the admonition that was given to you as sons. Don't grow weary under the chastening of the Lord. The Lord chastens those whom he loves. And if he's not chastening you, you're not his. You don't want to be chastened? You don't want chastening to be brought into the conversation? Then don't let sonship be brought into the conversation. 
Get rid of the chastening, get rid of the adopting. You want to be God's son with all the benefits? Then take the chastening that has to come with it. You've got corruptions in you, brethren. God's not going to let those things just sit and simmer till heaven. That's not the way this works. The devil's not going to let you be holy till heaven. God's not going to let you simmer in your sin till heaven. There's a war. The spirit lusts against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit. And you're in the middle. The devil is tempting them. And the Lord standing behind all this using Satan as the instrument is proving and testing. In other words, the comfort here and the uplifting essence of this exhortation is the intent of the suffering from God's vantage point. The devil is only a tool in God's hands. As we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, when the Apostle Paul said that in order to keep him from being immeasurably puffed up because of the extraordinary revelations he had, the Lord sent a stake in his side, a messenger of Satan. And he besought not Satan to remove it, but the Lord to remove it. And the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you. Two things going on. God sent it, and it's a messenger of Satan. The prosperity and health preachers are saying that every bad thing is from Satan and every good thing is from God. And they're quoting scripture texts that sound good. But they're missing the point. The devil's never done anything without permission from God. He couldn't touch Job without permission from God. He can't touch you without permission from God. The devil is involved in the problem. He is sending the pain. He is casting you into prison. His motives in doing it is to devour you, not your body, but your soul. The devil would be panicked if he thought that killing you would get you right into heaven. That's not his goal at all. He's not trying to speed you to glory. He's trying to scare you out of it. But behind it, the Lord is in charge. And his goal is for your righteousness and peace and your everlasting safety and comfort. It's good to see that, brethren. The intent of these sufferings is in the hands of God. But notice in the third place the truth behind these sufferings, the interval of the sufferings. We've seen the instrument and the intent. Look at the interval. Ten days. You shall have tribulation. Verse 10, 10 days. What does that mean? Well, we don't believe that the crassly literal interpretation is adequate in this passage. The number 10 throughout the Bible represents fullness and completeness. If you go back, to, you'll notice that the Bible has 10 patriarchs before the flood of judgment, 10 plagues before the deliverance of Israel from Egypt, 10 commandments. There are ten horns on the dragon in Revelation. There are ten horns on the beast. There are ten kings that commit fornication with the harlot. Ten virgins in the Lord's parable. The number ten is a round number, and all of its multiples are full and complete in round numbers. And the Lord uses this almost invariably in the Scripture to represent fullness and completeness of a measurement of fullness fixed by God and limited by God. Ten horns meaning the full expression of the anti-Christian powers of the world against Christ and his people. Their full manifestation. But the ten means God's put a limit on it. That's all there is. And at the end, there ain't no more. And here in this passage, ten days implies a relatively short period. Not ten years. Ten days. The complete fullness of the sufferings... 
find their, themselves under the appointment of God, limited by God, placed by God in their appointed spot, and there's nothing going to happen more or less than God has appointed, and they have an end. The devil's mad partly because, isn't it, that his days are numbered, the time is short. That's part of why he's mad. He can't do anything to extend the time. The Lord shortens the time. Ten days. It's an appointed time of God. So it ought to uplift you, fear not. Be faithful unto death. The suffering won't last long. Romans 8.18 told us that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Not worthy to be compared. Fear not. Now that's the first aspect of the upliftingness of this exhortation. The truth behind the sufferings. The instrument, the intent, and the interval. But the second truth behind this, the second aspect that is uplifting in this exhortation, simply the promises that come after the sufferings. We've seen the truth behind the sufferings. Look at the promises after the sufferings. There are just two of them. The Lord says, if you be faithful unto death, I will give you what? A crown of life. And then he says in the last of verse 11, he that overcomes shall not be hurt of the second death. Now, this crown is the word Stephanos, and it literally means in the scripture, it's, it refers to the crown of rejoicing or triumph or accomplishment or achievement or commendation. It's a praise crown. It's, it's a garland placed upon the head of an athlete that's made it to the end and has won the prize. It's not the crown that's placed on the heads of kings. It's not the diademata. It's the crown of, of achievement, making it to the end. Reaching the goal. And it's a congratulatory crown given by the, the, the head of the race or the, the director of the Olympiad or whoever's giving out the crowns, the chief judge. And in this case, the Lord Jesus is going to give what to those who endure faithfully to death? The congratulatory mark of their endurance and accomplishment. The crown of life. What's the reward for enduring to death? Life. And it's seen as a crown, as an eternal mark of God's commendation to them that they endured to the end. Oh no, it's not the means of their salvation. It's the confirmation of their salvation. And there's congratulations in order. There's a praiseworthy crown. Now it's a crown that's going to be laid at the Lord's feet in another place in Revelation. Because all the grace came from him. And all the glory goes to him. But there's a crown of life to be given. Fear not. You endure to the end. I'll give you a crown of life. Don't fear death. I'll give you life. You'll not be hurt of the second death. You see, for the wicked, their life is death. But for the righteous, their death is life. Like the woman in Paul's epistle who lives in pleasure. She's dead while she lives. The wicked are dead in their sins. And their physical death will confirm them in sin and bring them swiftly and unavoidably to the second death, the lake of fire. As Augustine said, the life of the damned is death. But for the Christian to live is Christ and to die is gain. For the Christian, death is a welcome thing. It's nothing but a transit into a better world. 
to be to depart and be with Christ is far better. And that includes the departure. The means of travel. Which is death. The Lord says to them, oh, you're going to be hurt by this death. This is going to be, you're going to die. But you'll not be hurt by the second death. You see, this, the death that they're going to die is not a bad, hurtful death. It's sleep for the believer. But the second death is the hurtful death. And the Lord says, you'll not be hurt. And this word not literally in the Greek is a double negative. And that means when, it's, when the Greek uses a double negative, which we don't have in English, it means there's absolutely beyond any hope of possibility that it could ever happen. There's no way the second death will hurt you if you're faithful unto death. You give up before death, you give in to the pressure, the second death will hurt you. You endure to the end, the second death has no power over you. Blessed and holy is he that takes part in the first resurrection because on him the second death has no power. So these very precious promises the Lord gives in order to encourage people. Now quickly, brethren, I want you to endure the applications. I want you that are sleeping to wake up. You will be wide awake during the picnic tomorrow. I want you to be wide awake during the preaching tonight. And those that are beginning to get a little bored and set in your ways, I'm coming to the application now. You're going to need to remember what we just said about the other for the application to make any sense at all to you. To him that has much, more shall be given. The first point of application do not equate trials and ordinary providences that are dark with persecution for righteousness' sake. Do not equate ordinary dark providences and trials with persecution for righteousness' sake. One of the temptations is you've got a stub toenail, you're suffering for Jesus. I don't mean to be cheek about it. But as a pastor, I hear comments often from people who think they're suffering for Christ. And if they only knew what some other people are going through, they'd shut their mouths. Not to mention if they understood what they may one day go through legitimately for their faith. Getting sick is not suffering for Jesus' sake. It may be chastening at the hands of Christ, but it's not suffering for Christ's sake. Getting sick may be a providence of God that's very difficult to take but don't don't see it as persecution for righteousness sake you don't necessarily have to see it as punishment for your sins either as we've learned before providence is no necess- no guaranteed evidence of your favor with god god is kind even to the unholy and the unthankful they get rain too and I would submit to you that if the Midwest gets rain, brethren, it will not necessarily be because God doesn't want them to repent anymore. Instead of asking and praying for rain, which they're now emboldened to do on the TV sets in the Midwest, they're now praying for rain. But nobody's talking about repenting. Well, God may send rain. That doesn't prove that God has favored our lives in this country. And our liberties celebrated tomorrow may well still be in great jeopardy. I believe they are. I believe many have already been lost because of our refusal to repent. So don't you think that when bad things happen, any more than when good happens, it's God's favor. Don't think that when bad things happen, you're necessarily being persecuted for righteousness' sake. You may lose your job. It may not be because you're a Christian. It may be because you don't do well, good work. 
Don't suffer righteously. Don't suffer for what you do wrong. Suffer for righteousness. Then you get commendation. And that's what Hebrews 12 is about in chastening. He says to them in verse 4 of Hebrews 12, You've not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Why are you people growing weary under chastening? You haven't shed your blood and died for your faith yet, striving against sin. What are you complaining about? The Hebrews were giving up the faith and none of them had been killed yet for it. Don't get yourself equated with sufferers for righteousness' sake too quickly. And I would suggest that in our church we have very little suffering for righteousness. We have some, but don't get too bent out of shape over it, brethren. None of our blood's been shed yet. Not because of our righteousness. When that happens, we'll find much more comfort from these passages than we can find when we're not suffering much because of our stand. In the second place... I said it, but I'm going to say it again because it needs to be emphasized, especially to us who see something of evidence of growth in a church who are talking about a possible building program. Outward prosperity is no sure sign of a true or a blessed church. Outward prosperity is no sure sign of a true church or a blessed church. I know you're poverty, Smyrna, but you're rich. Church wasn't about to start a building program, brethren. But the Lord saw them as rich. Now, does that mean you're not supposed to start a building program? I hope you're not that shallow as to interpret it that way. Does that mean you shouldn't pray for a building that's got parking off the street? I don't believe so. But I believe it means you need to guard yourselves as a church. And we need to be careful about our spirit and attitude. That if there are those among us who continue with unmortified sin, watching the blessing of God in the church and finding some security in that because, after all, God's blessing's still on us, watch out. God may continue to bless the church, but you may not be a part of it. I would also say that the corollary of that, it's not just necessarily so. That if God does give external prosperity to a church, that there's something wrong with her. I would suggest that in the first church at Jerusalem, God was not sending disfavor by adding 5,000 in one day. It was evidence of God's presence among them and his great power among them. So be careful that you don't despise the blessing of God, whether it comes expressed quietly and behind the scenes in spirit or both behind the scenes in spirit and in the open so the community begins to notice something's happening. Be cautious. You don't begin to interpret for God what he's up to. Laodicea. (laughs) They were fat and rich, they said, but the Lord said, you need somebody to put clothes on you. You're naked and destitute and blind. Smyrna. They thought they were naked and destitute and blind. The Lord said, you're rich. Well, in the third place, the most insidious and subtle persecutors that will come to us are often those of the apostate church and the professors of Christianity who don't have the real thing. The most insidious and subtle persecutors of God's people are usually other people who claim to be God's people. The synagogue of Satan. Organized religion. Claiming to be the people of God. They retain the names, the forms. But they don't have the power. 
They're the ones that largely are going to bother you. They're the ones that are going to distress you. They're the ones that are going to lie about you, and they're going to get the foot in the door, and they'll bring more harm and damage to you than the overt heathen out there will. The heathen often are much more kind to us and tolerant of us than other so-called brethren. Because we're no threat to them. But those other brethren, supposed brethren, and true brethren never persecute true brethren. They're insidious and subtle. So watch out for that. The fourth point I want to make, and we're going to be finished in just a moment. Learn parenting from Christ. Learn how to be a parent by observing how the Lord deals with you. When your little ones are hurting, don't stand aloof, man, and act Mr. Macho. It's okay for you to hurt with your little ones. It's good for you to enter into their griefs. It's all right, guys, to hug them and kiss them. You need to do a bit of that. Mommy's not the only one to do that. The Apostle Paul said to the church at Thessalonica, I was among you as a nurse with her little ones. Why, where did he get that model? He learned it from the Lord Jesus. I know your poverty. Learn how to parent. Guys, I'm not impressed by that kind of macho that doesn't want to give anybody the impression you hurt with them. I didn't say get out and fall to pieces when your kids are irrational and their fears and they're squalling ir- irresponsibly. I didn't say that. You have to teach them and you have to know when to stop and you have to say, all right, we've had our grief time. Now let's get to work. And don't look back over your shoulder to wonder if they're going to follow. You just go on and do it and they'll learn that way. But learn how to be tender as the Lord knows how to be tender. And that does not give up the fact that there's a legitimate time for them to see you angry. Just as God is seen to be angry with his people. But learn from the Lord how to be a parent. Well, in the fifth place, brethren, if the second death has no power over us, then you tell me what does. What is it that you're scared of? If you're not going to be hurt by the second death, who's going to hurt you? Where's the griping, complaining, and murmuring coming from? Where's the shriveled up, timid Christianity coming from? If you can't stand up against what you're facing, you'll never make it to death. If the devil is ever pleased to do that to you. Toughen your hide. Strengthen your heart. He that retreats in the day of battle, his strength is small. We need to develop spiritual muscle and resistance and courage. We don't have much of it, brethren. We've not been called upon very often to show much. Many of us are still tucking tail and running at the first sign of a battle. We've never even been in combat yet because we've never faced the enemy up close. Some of us perhaps in this place, are depending on pastor's 15-mile battleship lobs to take care of the enemy. But what if you have to get in the boats and head for the beach? 
What if you've got to get out there with bayonets and do hand-to-hand with the enemy yourself? Are you up to it? Well, I tell you, you are if you can understand that not even the second death can touch you. The first death is nothing but a way to glory. The second death can't touch you. Who can harm you? Toughen up, brethren. But in the final place, and I know that I'm speaking to some in our midst who have never done a a serious job of contemplating this issue. But you notice that the real concern, the crucial and ultimate concern of this passage from our Lord to the Church of Smyrna is the second death. That's the issue. The first death is not the big issue. The sufferings are not the big issue. The blasphemies are not the big deal. The thing that we need to know is how do we stand in reference to the second death? And I fear that there may be some in our midst tonight who are living dead to God. (coughs) The reason that you're bored with preaching is because you're dead to preaching. The reason that God is a myth to you is because you're dead to God. The reason that you're living the way you're living and not able even to get stirred up very much about stopping your wickedness. The reason you don't wake up in the middle of the night trembling and weeping and sweating and weeping your way to God. The reason your daily life is not characterized by repentance and begging God. The reason you sat in the sermon this morning and were not touched by the searching eye of God in the preaching on his omniscience. And didn't begin to catalog sins from the past. And to begin to feel a bit uncomfortable because you know if there's any of those things that are not under the blood of Christ you're damned and headed for hell. Is because you've never dealt honestly with this issue do you understand where you're headed do you understand that if you die in the state you're in you're going to go to hell you understand why we get excited in our preaching sometimes and sometimes plead and sometimes get loud and sometimes get urgent because really it boils down to where you're going to stand when Jesus Christ cast multitudes into the lake of fire Broad is the way that leads to life. Wide is the gate. And many are running in there. That leads to death. Many are going into the death gate. The fact that all your friends are doing it doesn't mean it's leading to life. Don't don't partake of them. And brethren, I want to say this to the church. And to any of you young people that believe you're Christians, let me tell you what you must do at school. You must not let your friends think that they're, they're going to make it okay in the way they're talking and living. They're, they're going to go to hell. And when you get in with them and make it appear that it's okay with you, they live that way. You're saying you don't believe they're going to hell or you don't care. When they want you out at midnight, when Christian girls ought not be out at midnight, you ought not be out there. And you may lose a friend, and but she may think, you know, there's something different about that girl. And she may start asking you someday. Otherwise, she may never ask because there's nothing different. You fellas and gals that are tempted to break the rule and maybe have one date with somebody that's not a clear-cut holy person. Do you know what you're doing? Not only are you endangering your own soul, Good, evil companionships corrupt good morals. 
You're endangering them by letting them know that Christians are not alarmed about being unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And let me tell you as your pastor, if I find out evidentially that any of you in this church is allowing your children to go out with unbelieving people in a date, I'll stop it or you won't have communion here. You can't. Because then I'm unequally yoked together with you. You hear that? What am I saying? Someday the weeping and the wailing and the gnashing of teeth will be much more offensive to you than me tonight. You wish you could hear me yell again. You'll ask the Lord to send the likes of me back to war and your brethren still in the world. And it won't be able to be done. But some poor soul in this place tonight may literally be dangling over the fires of hell itself. And the flames are licking at your own feet. You don't see it. May God help you to see it. The Lord Jesus is the only way you can be saved from it. And He doesn't save you in your sin. He saves you from your sin. You must stop this arrogant independence of yours. You must stop trying to prove that you can make it your way. You're killing yourself and headed for the pit. You must humble yourself and repent and tremble and weep your way to God. And beg God to have mercy on your soul. He will. The Lord Jesus died for the likes of us. Have committed all manner of wickedness. But outside of him there's no hope. The issue is the second death. I want to know. If you're seriously considering. Where you stand when you walk out of this room tonight. If you died tonight. If the Lord Jesus comes back tonight. Where are you? Where are you going? Where do you stand? I want to know. That the second death has no power over me. I need to go to sleep tonight. Knowing that it cannot hurt me. Can you go to sleep tonight. Knowing the second death has no power over you. Do you know the sweet joy of being able to say, as you drift off to sleep, thank you, Lord, for saving me from hell. Do you know what that means? I'll tell you, you, I wouldn't go to sleep till I got it settled. I beg of you, seek counsel, ask for help, get your way to God, pray, ask the Lord Jesus to save you and deliver you from the wrath to come. That's the issue. That's the crucial issue. And may God give us who are his and who have been delivered from that wrath the grace to understand what our testimony means to others around us who are headed there. Let's pray. Father, you have been pleased to give the excellency of the knowledge of Christ in earthen vessels. 
I would not presume to stand in this place and do what I've done if I did not understand and believe that. And though I do not comprehend it, I submit to it. And I ask you, O Lord, not for my sake or for our sakes, but for the sake of your Son and for your own namesake who chose this wonderfully strange method that you would take the words of the mouth of the feet of clay and a sinful man and smite the heart and the conscience of poor sinners and your dear people. Comfort them.